He wrote to the Jew in mind, and, and he presents Jesus as the son of David, the heir to the throne of Israel. Uh, Mark was written with the Roman in mind, and his gospel account is very concise to the point, and he uh, presents Jesus as the servant. Luke, which is the longest of the recordings, writes with the Greek in mind, and he considers the humanity of Jesus, and often refers to Jesus as the son of man. But when you come to John's gospel, he does not write with any particular audience in mind, either Jew or Gentile, but he's writing, in fact, to the entire world, as he tells us at the end of his uh, gospel message. And so that's why John's gospel is referred to as the universal gospel. And John presents Jesus in his deity. He presents him as God himself. In fact, John begins his message of Jesus well before any of these moments took place. He starts at the very beginning, and when I say that, I mean the very beginning, even before the dawn of creation. So in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John's gospel is very unique in the fact that it's the only gospel that begins the story of Jesus Christ, not as he appears on earth, but as he existed before time itself. Genesis 1 verse 1 is the very first verse in all of scripture, and it begins by saying, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the beginning of humanity, the beginning of creation as we know it and understand it today. But John in John chapter 1 verse 1 goes even beyond that message and says before that, before that man ever existed, before that God even spoke the world into existence, before anything was ever created, it's in that beginning, and it's really not a beginning, because uh, there's no beginning to Jesus, there's no beginning to God, but it's just a way for us to understand it as readers. But it's that moment that Jesus was, and he was the Word. And so the title that John uses is also very unique, the Word, uh, in, in reference to Jesus Christ himself. In the Greek, it was the word logos, which the Greeks believed to be a power that set the world in motion. Uh, they were pantheistic, they didn't believe in God um, of Israel that we study here in God's word, uh, but they believed in a greater power in the universe itself, and they called it the Logos, the word that set the world in motion, the thinker behind the thought, the creator behind the creation. And so John presents Jesus as, as, as the Logos rather than the universe. To the Jews, when they considered this phrase the word, to them that was synonymous to God himself. Therefore, when John opens his gospel with Jesus being the word, it's clear to both the Jews and the Greeks alike that he means that Jesus is God. And that's very important for us to understand this evening, the, the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a non-negotiable doctrine to the Christian faith. Anybody that denies Jesus as God does not know Jesus and is not saved. Period. If Jesus is not God, then we have no Savior. And without a Savior, we are dead in our trespasses, as it tells us in the book of Ephesians. But we can be sure uh, and confident in the fact that Jesus is God because, number one, Jesus is eternal. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He is not a created being. He was there from the beginning of the beginnings. And Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Colossians. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. During his earthly ministry, Jesus never denied his eternal existence before the world began, but he only reaffirmed it. If you recall, uh, Jesus was confronted by religious leaders and they were questioning him about his identity. And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus did is, when he said this, he, said, he took the title of God himself and used it for himself when he revealed himself 
uh, to the people. This is the same, uh, the same title that God gave himself when he revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus took the title of God himself, claimed to be the one that always, that always existed, and therefore Jesus never denied being God, but on the contrary, he only reaffirmed it. And continuing in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not only is Jesus eternal, but in him we have eternal life. And the word life is a theme that John uses throughout his gospel. In fact, he uses the word 36 times throughout the entirety of his gospel. And the word that John uses for life does not come from the Greek word bios, which we get our biology from, physical life itself. He actually uses the Greek word zoe, which refers to the soul and to spiritual life. And the Bible tells us that before we come to know Christ, even though we are physically breathing and living in that sense, that we are in fact spiritually dead. Apart from Christ, there is no life. 1 John 5 verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's very clear cut, very simple for us to understand this evening. And it was the Pharisees of all people that during Jesus' ministry that were spiritually dead. These are the spiritual leaders of their day, but they did not understand the words which they had studied. They had all the knowledge of the scriptures. They grew up studying the law of the, and the prophets. And by doing so, that they actually believed that they obtained salvation through the studying of God's word and through their works. But Jesus says to them in John chapter 5, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures themselves, that bear witness about me. There are people like that today. They go to church consistently. They have a pretty good grasp of scriptures and who Jesus was and is. But all that head knowledge has not penetrated their hearts and they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. And because of that, they are spiritually dead. But it says, in him is life. And we don't just have John's personal perspective of this. We have Jesus himself once more confirming this on multiple occasions. In John chapter 10 verse 10 he says, I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In other words, you don't know real life until you know Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So now we also know that not only is Jesus eternal and that he offers eternal life and it's only found through him, Jesus is also the light. So even though Jesus was, the, was and is the light of life, not everyone comprehends it. As it tells us in scripture, many in fact resist it. They're unwilling to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. They live in sin, or, or to live in sin is to live in darkness and to hide from the Lord. To cover your sin is to live in darkness. The wonderful thing though is that we need not to fear our sin being revealed. In Christ we now have life and have it abundantly, he tells us. And so if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in fact a son or a daughter of light. You are no longer bound to sin and darkness. You're no longer bound to this world. You've been set free from the bondage of sin and death and now can walk confidently in freedom and life. And before we continue on in John chapter 1, I just want to take a quick detour back into the Old Testament, specifically uh, Isaiah chapter 53, and look at the prophecy concerning the Messiah found there. 
Beginning in verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him. And all these words you find in Isaiah 53. We're going to look at a few this evening, but all of them you find are actually prophetic words of Jesus Christ. He said, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So first off, we see that Jesus came from very humble beginnings and came from a very humble birth. Essentially, he was born to a peasant woman in Mary. His earthly father was a carpenter, or perhaps it's better translated as a builder in the area of Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town. It makes Indian River look big on the map, so it's saying something. Uh, It was very small. And it's also, it very politely tells us that he wasn't the most handsome man on the planet. (laughs) He was very ordinary when you laid eyes upon him. He didn't stand out. And part of the problem with many people during his ministry was that they were expecting a king in the earthly sense, and the king in the, in the way that they had it in their mind. Someone who had a grand entry, who looked the part, acted the part in their understanding of a king. And so that's why John chapter 1 verse 10 makes so much sense. That the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And while the world did not know him, it goes even further. It says that he was despised and rejected by men. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he was rejected by the very people he came to save. He was rejected by his family, rejected by his town, by the religious leaders. He was rejected by the world and crucified because of it. And this truth, again, runs parallel to, for, to John chapter 1, verse 11, which says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But I want to pause for a moment in Isaiah uh, 53, verse 3. It's one that's often overlooked when we go through these scriptures, but it can be of much encouragement to some of us this evening, and that's my hope and prayer as we look through this real quickly. It says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, some people think from time to time, right, nobody understands what I'm going through. Right? I, I would tell people, but they just wouldn't get me. They wouldn't understand why I'm struggling the way I am. But here it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He knew what, what it was like to be grieved and in pain. And the depths of the sorrow and the grief that Jesus went through, we cannot comprehend. We have to understand that Jesus was in perfect relationship with God the Father. And and when he hung on that cross, there was that separation from the Father that he experienced that we could never fully grasp or understand. And so that tells me that no matter how potentially deep our sorrow and pain could go, that Jesus has already been there. And that he understands us. Which in turn tells me that he understands what we are going through. He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. And it tells us in the scripture that he desires to help those in need. And further expounding on this incredible truth in Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those are such encouraging words. And I hope and pray that speaks to you this evening. And why do you think it is in the ministry of Jesus, whenever there's somebody hurting, whenever there was anybody in need, regardless of who it was, regardless of uh, social standing, regardless of their uncleanliness, that Jesus would go to minister to these people. He would reach out to them. He would take time out of his day purposely to reach these people. It's because it tells us in Psalm 34, he is near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He is our Messiah who understands sorrow and is acquainted with grief. 
Hebrews 4.15 tells us further expounding on this truth. It says, For we do not have a high priest, being Jesus, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what it says is that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He has been everywhere that we have been and he knows how to minister to us. So the invitation we have is one where we can boldly approach his throne of grace and this is only possible because he understands. Right? When we present our pains, we present our frustrations and our angers before the throne of Jesus, it's not like he says, I wish I could understand what that feels like, I just don't. You know, good best of luck to you. But he understands them and so he brings them in and he knows how to minister to us in our time of need. And so if you're in a valley this evening, if you've been stuck in a rut for a while, I pray that you find encouragement in God's word. And know that you can boldly come before the throne of grace and receive his mercy and help in our time of need. Jesus is there for us, he sympathizes with us, and he understands and desires to help us. And continuing in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice what Jesus has done. He bore our griefs, he carried our sorrow, and he was wounded, but not for his transgressions, because he doesn't have any transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. And if you want to make this personal this evening, you say, Lord, you bore my grief. You carried my sorrow. You were pierced for my transgressions and crushed for my sins. And that is why Jesus came to earth and that's why Jesus went to the cross. It's for you and it's for me. And it says that with his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the Bible describes, was whipped repeatedly. Yet through his suffering, the prophet Isaiah says, what he endured was for our healing. Jesus was separated from the Father so that we would never have to be. Jesus took pain upon him that we could be made whole. And so the whole purpose of the Creator entering into creation, that's the whole Christmas story. Jesus, born of a virgin, is the story of the Creator entering into his creation to be the atoning sacrifice for us all. And to conclude here in John chapter 11, or chapter 1, excuse me, it says, He came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the gift that we receive in Jesus coming down to earth, dying on the cross for our sins, is found right here in verse 12. The right to become children of God. And it's very crucial for us to understand this evening, is that not everyone is a child of God. So so what makes someone a child of God while the other person is not? And again, the answer is found here in verse 12. To all who did receive him, and who believed in his name, it says what? He gave the right to become children of God. So that's the gift this evening, the right to become children of God. The gift itself has been given to every human being. It's been placed before the feet of everybody, but not everyone will receive it. And what I mean by that is not everyone will accept it. John Piper explains furthermore what it means to become a child of God. He says, in other words, if you become a child of God, you become an heir of all that God owns. All that belongs to God is your inheritance. In the resurrection, everything that exists will be yours. And God will care for you forever and make you infinitely happy in his presence. 
The true gift of the birth of Jesus is fully revealed in the well-known verse of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the word perish is not significant or, or not signifying a physical death. Perish is eternal separation from God and eternal death. But those who believe in him, it says, will have eternal life. So this gift, the right to become children of God, is freely extended to every single person. But again, not all will accept it. There are two conditions, however, to becoming a child of God. The first, as we see, these are both listed in verse 12, is receiving Jesus. Now, receiving Jesus means that you receive all of Jesus, right? Not just part of him, not just the part that you like, but all of Jesus. Not the parts that just fit with your agenda or comfortability. And again, John Piper explains this well. He says, if he comes to you as Savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. As counselor, you welcome his counsel. As protector, you welcome his protection. As authority, you welcome his authority. And if he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. Receiving Jesus means taking into your life... It means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. It does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with a Christ who has made no claims. You may recall in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus, as he begins his ministry, that he taught in the synagogues. And it tells us in verse 14 that he was glorified by all who heard him. In verse 22, it tells us that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So in verse 22, it tells us all these people heard what he was saying and they loved it. Right? They praised him. They glorified him. They, they loved what he was saying. But it takes just six short verses for the, the tables to turn entirely. It tells us later that the crowd was filled with wrath. And they even attempted to throw Jesus off a cliff. <laughs> so talk about changing lanes here. Huh? You know, they were all about what he was saying and preaching. And then it's just six verses later, they're ready to, to kill him. So what happened? They were willing to receive his kind words, but as soon as uh, Jesus pointed towards their pride, as soon as he pointed tough truth to them in their lives, they rejected him. So it's important to understand this evening that receiving Jesus does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims. Receiving Jesus means taking him into your life. means taking him into your home, your school, your work, your marriage, your dreams, and taking all of him for who he really is. So receiving Jesus is the first condition. The second is believing in his name. And what does that mean? John 6.35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What this verse teaches us is that believing in Jesus means being satisfied with Jesus. The truth of the matter is, guys, and I know, especially on Christmas time, when we're looking forward to all these gifts that we're going to receive and all the gifts that we're giving and, and just to see the joy on other people's faces as we give, the truth of the matter is that Jesus is all we actually need. Amen. Our flesh will lead us to the desires of this world. It promises satisfaction there, but it's a false satisfaction. It may satisfy for a time, but as many of us know, when we seek out the satisfaction of those things, the satisfaction kind of goes away over time. Essentially, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. But truly believing in Jesus is saying that he is enough through the life that we live. So the question for you guys this evening, is Jesus enough for you? Do you seek the pleasures and promises of this world for satisfaction? Or is the promise of Jesus enough? And if you're not sure of the answer, the actions and your choices are, will be a telling answer to you. So I encourage you to look inwardly this evening. 
And lastly, John breaks down the entire Christmas celebration in one singular verse in John 1.14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we've already established who the Word is. It's Jesus Christ. But in this verse, it also tells us that He became flesh. What does that mean? It's an incredibly simple statement, and yet the truth behind it is miraculously profound. First off, the statement that the Word became flesh implies that He was not flesh prior to the events of the virgin birth. He was spirit when the foundation of the earth were created, and then the Creator enters into His creation by becoming flesh. In other words, He becomes man. The term flesh also is used here by Jesus himself in John 6. He said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So it also tells us why he came as flesh. He became flesh in order that he could sacrifice himself for the life of the world. He became flesh essentially so that he could die. But the answer to this question is very straightforward. God became incarnate and lived a life in the form of man. It's important to understand that there are heresies concerning the nature of Jesus over the course of or the, over the history of Christianity, and one of them is called Docetism. Uh, and this is the idea that Jesus didn't really have a human body, that he just projected one, that he was really just a spirit the whole time, that he looked like man, but in fact he was not. Um, but this would undermine Jesus having a physical death and the resurrection. And it may seem impossible for some that the Son of God would actually dwell on earth as a baby. You think about that. If any of you have babies or had babies, you think about all the needs that babies have. Right? You need to wipe their nose, change their diapers, clip their nails, feed them. They're, they're fully and solely dependent upon their parents or, or those who um, are watching them. You know, we think of the Messiah in that way, and it's hard for us to fathom or grasp. But it was his willingness to humble himself and take on humanity's weaknesses that made Jesus' victory over death possible. All right, and that's the truth for us this evening that we need to understand. If you're going to get anything out of this message, that's what I want it to be. It was his willingness to humble himself and take on humanity's weaknesses that made Jesus' victory over death possible. But he did more than just live as man, as John 1.14 implies, that he also dwelt among us. So what are the implications of that? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I absolutely love this part of the verse, but it is easy to misunderstand the implications of this. The Greek word for dwelt typically means to uh, pitch a tent, which would seem to suggest that this is a temporary placement of Jesus. Right? When you use a tent for camping, it's there for just a very short time, and you can pack it up quickly and move on. Uh, and so we can come to think that this means that it's talking about Jesus' earthly ministry. But if you look at the statement that the word dwelt among us, it, it did not imply that Jesus came temporarily to be among his people. Rather, it implies that Jesus, to dwell among us, is to be near to us. It was to have access to us. It's all about proximity. And that's the point of Christmas. And so we can take the entire Christmas story, it's essentially summed up in one beautiful verse here in John 1 verse 14, and it looks like this, that Christmas is God, the Word, becoming man so that he might die to be near his people. And so the people at the Bible Project, they they explain this wonderfully. We have a video for you I'd like to share. Uh, Take a look. I just want to close with a quote um, from one of my favorite pastors. His name is uh, Timothy Keller. And uh, he wrote a, a, wrote a book called Hidden Christmas. And towards the end of the book, he said that the claims in 1 John 1 verse 1 that our hands have touched him never ceases to amaze. 
How could the infinite become that finite? The extraordinary become that ordinary? Yet that is the very heart of the Christmas message. Unimaginable greatness was packed into a manger. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. The world can't comprehend it. It wants spectacle. And so it is the greatest irony that Christmas is the one Christian holiday that the world seems to embrace. Yet it's the message is the most incomprehensible to that world. Jesus was not born in a civic arena, but in a stable. He did not go to live in a palace, but was immediately made a homeless refugee. The guests at his birth were not A-listers, but shepherds. The world cannot comprehend a God like Jesus. And so uh, I just want to close in prayer. And then after that, we're going to have the kids. They're going to put on this little presentation for you guys. I hope that you guys are blessed by it and enjoy it. Um, they've, they've been working on it. I know they're excited. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, that we can celebrate the Christmas message, Lord. And I just pray that as we give our gifts tomorrow and this evening and, um, and, and receive and, and give, that we are just reminded of the ultimate gift that you have given us, Lord. It's a gift that we, do not, we, can't, we can't earn, we don't deserve it, but you have freely offered it to us because of your love for us. And so we thank you for that gospel message and that truth for us. And that you humbled yourself to the point of becoming man and living and dwelling among your people. And even though many of us have rejected you, Lord, you still count us as lost sheep and desire to see us saved. And Lord, so I just pray for those who may have rejected you that may be here tonight, that you would continue to pursue their hearts and that the message of truth would just lay upon them. And we just give this evening to you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.